Yeah, the one thing that I saw in spring training, he pitched three times in spring training, and the one thing I noticed was when he throws his two-seam fastball and his four-seam fastball, he doesn't lose any velocity. Oftentimes, a pitcher that throws a good four-seam fastball and then throws a two-seamer as well, he'll lose a couple of miles an hour in velocity with that two-seamer. That's not the case with Manoa. Interesting start, his major league debut at none other than Yankee Stadium. Pretty special moment. Hey, what's going on? It's At The Letters, presented by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Today is Thursday, May 27th. My name's Arden Zwelling. Ben Nicholson-Smith is with me, as always, and our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Ben, it's Thursday morning, and the Blue Jays are playing two games today. So by the time people listen to this, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff may have happened. Uh, They may have won two games, may have lost two games. They have won one and lost one. Those are really the only outcomes that you may have. Some guys may have got hurt. Some guys probably going to hit homers. And Alec Manoa is expected to debut in the major leagues. So a lot is going to happen. Uh, and we have no idea right now what <laughs> has happened in either of these two games. Uh, but we can talk about you know what we're expecting to see in this doubleheader uh, in the Bronx against the New York Yankees. And we, as I mentioned, are expecting to see Alec Manoa start the first game and this is uh something that we've been talking about quite a bit in the last couple of episodes Uh, i think we both laid out the case you know pretty clearly last time out that yeah call him up it's time like let's see uh you know what it looks like at the big league level let's give him a a new challenge but what do you make of kind of the entry point to his major league career pitching in the bronx against the yankees his first time on an mlb mound Yes, yeah, super interesting. And what a what a challenge for Manoa. I mean, like you said, even last week, I think we were both at the point where it's like this guy has done so well in his AAA starts that it did become reasonable for them to call him up. And obviously they saw it the same way internally to call him up and start him against the Yankees. I mean, I had kind of I had thought maybe they would wait another week and do it against the Marlins. Uh, this obviously reflects a lot of confidence in Manoa. And like you said, it's kind of interesting the timing of it because we're talking right now to an audience that knows much more about Alec Manoa than we do as we record this. But I'm kind of assuming that he's going to go out there and pitch well. Maybe I don't think he's going to go seven innings. Maybe he goes four or five. Maybe he strikes out seven, allows a couple runs. That's, I think, a reasonable expectation. Regardless, we're not going to judge... Alec Manoa on one single start, whether it's great, whether it's bad. He has shown in the course of the three starts that he is on a very good track. And one start can certainly shift things. There's no question about that. But it's not going to totally change his trajectory as a prospect or what he means to this Blue Jays team. So I think he's going to be here for a little while. Clearly, the expectations that we had about trying to push him, trying to develop him in the major leagues letting service time go to the side, making the impact that he can have in the major leagues be the priority. Those assumptions ended up right, and now we'll see what he can actually do on the field. Yeah, I like that they're not being too cute about it. You know, you're going to have to pitch at Yankee Stadium if you're going to have a good major league career. Like, you're going to have to face good lineups you know like the blue jays could have been you know kind of precious and said all right you know we'll bring him in for like they got two games against miami and buffalo um in about a week uh you know all right we could bring him in there right but 
or after that, it's like the Astros come to town and then it's yep. the White Sox and then it's Boston and then it's New York again. Like he's going to have to face good lineups. So don't get too cute about it. Like put him in against, you know, a, a good lineup right away. One he faced twice in spring training, by the way, and, and pitched well against. And obviously that's a kind of different degree of competition, uh, you know, spring training baseball versus regular season baseball. But still put him in against the Yankees and let's see how it goes. And like, look, it can go well, which great. Alec Manoa pitched well, and he just carries on. It can go kind of like okay, like so-so, you know, maybe four runs over five innings or, or something like that, and he kind of has his moments, and then he has his struggles. as kind of in between, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Or it could go really, really poorly, right? And he could, you know, only get four outs or yeah. something, or just the Yankees are all over him, and, you know, he's hanging sliders, and he's getting crushed. And that's not the worst outcome either, because now Alec Manoa knows what he has to work on. Like now he knows what it's like at the big league level. Like now he knows like, oh, OK, there really is a significant step up in competition here from the triple A hitters that I was blowing away to these major league hitters who are not chasing that stuff off the plate. And who, you know, when I fall behind 2-0, like they are like dialed in and locked in and punishing me for it. You know, when I hang a slider, they are hitting it over the fence. Like now Alec Manoa knows what what he has to work on if he struggles so like no matter how like what outcome we get here and how this goes it's only going to be positive going forward for Alec Manoa one way or the other yeah it's it's going to be a chance for him to learn if nothing else I mean you look at the New York Yankees and this is stating the obvious right here but they have some of the best hitters in the world and the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders do not so it's going to be a different kind of challenge for Manoa and like you said, at some point, he's going to have to face the Yankees and the Red Sox. And arguably, if you're the Blue Jays right now trying to win games, you might rather have Manoa. You do rather have Manoa than have a bullpen game and try to scrape it together for five or six or seven innings. I mean, that's one of the reasons they're calling him up. Now, I still don't think it's ideal, ideal. Maybe the ideal would be having the Marlins be that first uh, major league competition that he faces. But the Jays always have to juggle, like all teams do, the needs of the present day to win right now against what they're trying to do in developing Manoa. And in this case, there's some convergence. It's maybe not the perfect, perfect setup, but I think it's good enough and it's it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. So if he pitches well, obviously, he, he just continues in the rotation and continues to contribute to this club. If it goes okay, I would assume he gets another start, um, you know, and they try to get him back out there maybe against the Marlins and, and see how it goes against, you know, a different lineup. If it goes poorly, Ben, like, and if he gets shelled or if he can't locate or if, you know, he faces some adversity or he gets like a 40-pitch inning or something and they have to take him out, what do you do then? Like, do you give him another start from that point or does he go back to AAA? To me, he, he gets another start. Um, as long as you're not seeing... You know, health concerns, as long as the velocity is is there, he's throwing 95, 96 and not 90, 91. As long as he's basically Alec Manoa from a stuff standpoint as it leaves his hand, you give him at least one more start, in my opinion. Let him face the Marlins that next time out and see how he does then. Because I don't think you want to get into the habit of being overly reactionary. And the other reality is, who else is going to start? That's one of the reasons he's <laughs> up, right? Like they don't necessarily have. And Ross Stripling was great uh, the other day in relief after an opener. We'll get to all of that, of course, in the crazy week the Jays have had. But, you know, 
they do have maybe four starters right now, with Manoa being that fifth, taking the place of Anthony Kay. But it's not as though they have this abundance of starting pitchers where they can afford to be, you know, a little bit more cavalier with the guys that they have. Manoa looks like one of their best five options. So to me, that's yet another reason you keep him up. I kind of wonder about it, man, though, because we saw Nate Pearson come up and got like four outs in that out here, seven outs, whatever it was, and like didn't look good, couldn't command, like yep. just like was rough on the mound. They sent him back to AAA yep. and they had the same situation in the rotation, right? Like they were still, you know, looking for innings and they still didn't like have five established starters. And I mean, on a pure stuff standpoint, I would say Nate Pearson is still one of the, you know, top five pitchers on this club. He's just clearly going through some stuff with his mechanics and with his location and with his command. So, you know, if, if Alec Manoa goes out and has like a similar start to what Nate Pearson had when we last saw him, and he gets another opportunity. If I'm Nate Pearson, I'm kind of like, what the hell, man? Like, why did I have to go back to AAA, but you're going to give him another shot? Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, Pearson's location was all over the place, uh, not not nearly good enough. If Manoa were to go out and do that same thing, I still think you send him back because at least in Pearson's case, he's had multiple chances in the major leagues. It wasn't his first major league outing, and he was still coming back from an injury at that point. I think Manoa at full health and where he's at in his career, I just think showing some faith in the guy's standpoint, I think you give him a second outing. Interesting. I will be interested to see. Um, but hey, look, you know, hopefully he just pitches well right. and gets a good start to his big league career and carries on because the Blue Jays sure could use that. They could use a little bit of stability and reliability. Although it's not like, you know, starting pitching has really been that much of an issue for this club. We're seeing good outings from Steven Matz, seeing good outings from Robbie Ray, from Hunjin Ryu. Obviously, Ross Stripling bounced back really nicely from a rough start and came back with, a, you know, I guess it's, it's a relief outing. But I mean, seven shutout innings coming in after Trent Thornton opened that game against Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, but in spite of it all, Blue Jays losing and losing a lot. It was six in a row. Each one kind of felt more demoralizing than the last. <laughs> it was like, you know, ninth inning meltdowns and it was, you know, getting a great start and the offense doesn't show up. And it was, uh, you know, Travis Bergen walking in three consecutive runs and, you know, it was just each one was like this Shakespearean tragedy, one after the other. And when you're in the moment and when that is happening, like it can feel like the sky is falling. It can feel like this team, you know, the wheels come off the bus and this team's falling apart. It's all going down the tubes. But Blue Jays never like drop beneath 500 at any point in that time. Still in a pretty good spot, I would say. They finally got a win you know, over the Yankees the other day. So I don't know, Ben, like where where would you put like that six game losing streak on kind of like the scale of like concern? Like, is that just a blip in the season or did that kind of demonstrate some fractures in the foundation that are more concerning going forward? Yeah, it's. I think it's a really good question. It's definitely one that I've been wondering about, right? Like, does it reveal some sort of fatal flaw that uh, the Blue Jays will have to overcome or maybe can't overcome? I mean, to start, like what a horrible stretch of games. What a what an awful week. I mean, it's like you said, it was like absolutely everything that could possibly go wrong was going wrong. It was almost like it was a contest to see if they could outdo themselves for how poorly a game could go and how devastating the end result could be. So, I mean, that's the baseline. Let's not and I know you're not trying to dodge that, but certainly to acknowledge that was horrible. But I still think it doesn't to me reveal 
you know, some sort of major Achilles heel. To me, it's still a good baseball team. You could even say that the fact that they were in every game instead of getting blown out suggests that this is a team that's capable of sticking with the Rays and sticking with the Red Sox. So that's not me trying to take the Charlie Montoyo tone here and say, hey, I'm so proud of these guys and this is so great. Because again, it was a horrible week and they played some bad baseball at times. But I still think that, you know, when you look at the fact that A, you know, the team had some very good offensive stretches. B, it's not as though they were losing their best players to injuries. You know, bullpens are going to be inconsistent at times. You are going to have frustrating stretches at times. It is a long season. So there are questions, and, and we can get to some of those questions about the Blue Jays roster. And I do think certainly on the bullpen side, on the pitching side, there are real discussions to be had about the ways that this team can upgrade and needs to upgrade because they're not good enough right now. But they're still good. They're still a, like you said, 500 team, 500 plus team, contending team. It's certainly not what you would have wanted, but they land in a spot that's okay. Yeah. And everybody's going to land somewhere on that, like sliding scale from one pool being like, like you said, the Charlie Montoyo, like eternal optimist, like, oh, but we were right there with one of the best teams in baseball and we were playing good baseball. So I'm not worried. And like, that's, that's one polar opposite. And then the other is like the Josh Donaldson polar opposite of it's not the tri-league, it's the guy at Dunn League, right? And so you're going to fall somewhere in the middle. That sliding scale, of like how concerned you were watching the Blue Jays go through that and what it all meant. Um, it was tough because they were division opponents, right? It's Tampa Bay Rays, the team you're going to have to beat at some point if you're going to be a postseason club. It was tough because you were at home where you should have like a slight advantage. It was tough because of the uh, like sheer demoralizing fashion in which each loss occurred. <laughs> yeah. But I would say it's not the end of the world. When you really do pull out the lens and you look at this club, still a game over 500 in late May. A good spot to be in after the first two months. MLB's eighth best run differential. This is after playing one of MLB's toughest schedules. This is after having spent the second most amount of time on the road of any AL club. And this is with 14 of your 23 losses having been by two runs or fewer. So it's not like you're getting blown out. To me, it would be worse if it was like seven run losses every night, and eight yeah. run losses rather than of blowing course. it in the ninth. Right. And then you kind of like cast ahead 115 games remaining to get to 90 wins. The Blue Jays just need to play like 574 baseball like they can do that completely um they need 66 more wins to get to 90 and they have 32 games remaining against the orioles the tigers and the twins three teams they haven't played yet so i think they're in a good spot and i and also every team goes through this like good teams go through blips good teams have losing streaks remember how the yankees started the year right like and people wanted you know aaron boone and like brian cashman you know thrown off the the ship everyone was writing them off the yankees were looking up at the blue jays in the standings like a week ago the dodgers had their skid they lost 15 to 20 the astros lost 9 to 10 at one point i mean you know good teams go through this it's about how you respond it's about how you come out of it it's about how you kind of turn things around blue jays took the first step towards doing that against the yankees the other day we'll see if that continues today in the double header but, I mean, it's it's what happens next. It's what happens going forward, and it's how they kind of turn the page on it that I think will we'll say whether we look back on this skid as just a blip 
or as like something greater that exposed something about this team. For sure. And and like you said, I mean, they're over 500 as we record this and they have 115 games left. So that's almost two of last year's full season that's <laughs> yeah. remaining for them. I mean, it's, yeah. there's a lot of baseball remaining. Now, you know, I did come away from this stretch of baseball with a, a kind of an interesting, uh, maybe a shift in the way I'm looking at this roster a little bit, which is I'm looking at the top half of this roster and honestly, like I'm extremely impressed by it. I mean, you've got Vlad Jr. We'll, we'll get to him in a little bit more depth. Um, you've got Bichette. You've got Marcus Semyon, who's having an absolutely incredible May. You've got Teoscar, who's doing even more impressive things at the plate when it comes to laying off some high fastballs, making more consistent contact. Grichuk's having a great season. Ryu and Ray look like two guys that you would want pitching for you in a playoff series. And you've got Jordan Romano, not to mention George Springer coming back from injury. And he is one of the best players in baseball. So the top end talent on this team is very, very good. I think it's up there with the Padres, the Dodgers, the Astros, the Yankees, the best teams in baseball. Now, I don't think the Blue Jays are as good as those teams because I think that those teams do for the most part have better depth pieces and have more consistency when it comes to their bullpens, when it comes to the players that are replacing guys when they're hurt. And so the Blue Jays right now, as one example, Kevin Biggio's on the injured list. Okay, it's Joe Panic and Santiago Espinal at third base. Not great. They have lots of relievers on the injured list. Now, Joel Piamps and Anthony Castro are in leverage. Okay, for now, that's good. Who? What happens when those guys aren't available? Like honestly, who is? I was, I was like even trying to remember the relievers on this team at one point because it's like they are that far down the depth chart. So it's very clear to me that this team needs to be aggressive ahead of the trade deadline, adding when it comes to relief, when it comes to starting pitching, and when it comes to a third baseman, preferably one who hits from the left side. That's obvious. They need to do that. I think they will do that. But at the same time. It shouldn't be that hard to do. Like, it shouldn't be impossible. I'm not trying to undersell how difficult it is to create trades in a major league environment. I know that's hard, but it's not like they need to find elite pieces to make this team better. They can just find guys who help, who raise the floor, essentially, of this team. And hey, if there's a better deal out there, great. But they already have the elite talent. They just need to support it a little bit better. And that's something that they should be able to do, considering they have a a strong farm system and it's already clear as we approach the beginning of June what those needs look like. Yeah, it's, that's my biggest takeaway is that the the depth is better this season than it has been in recent years, but it's not there yet. Like it's not Dodgers depth, it's not Rays depth, and it's not the depth that the Blue Jays have needed to withstand some of the adversity they've been through. Like the way things currently are with Springer out, Biggio out, you kind of hinted at it. Like every day the Blue Jays are running out at least one of, and often two of, Joe Panic, Santiago Espinal, Jonathan Davis, and Reese McGuire. Those are players who are fine bench pieces. Like they're all strong defenders, but I think that offensively, their track records kind of suggest they aren't really capable of being consistently productive at the plate against this level of competition. So when you are like starting those players every day, like the bottom of your lineup is going to be a little dicey and you're going to need the guys at the top to really carry you. And like the Blue Jays have had that at times, right? Like Vladdy obviously has been huge. Like you said, Tay Oscar, Randall Grichuk's had his moments, but like, I mean, look, George Springer coming back is going to help that as well. But say the top of your lineup goes into a funk. 
and starts slumping. I mean, it's hard to see the bottomless lineup picking it up for them. So, yeah, that depth needs to be there. I'm starting to look around the league at, like you said, infielders who hit from the left side. Like, I'm starting to look around for, like, the Eduardo Escobars of this world. You know, like, I'm I'm starting to, you know, look around for the, I don't know, no one else comes to mind. But, like, that is something the Blue Jays, I think, need to acquire uh, coming into the deadline. Like, you know, infielder, another position player. Obviously, they need pitching depth like obviously they need more pitchers you know they need this year's Taiwan Walker or this year's Robbie Ray like so I don't know one two starters they need bullpen help clearly Kirby Yates David Phelps both done for the year Julian Merriweather kind of hard to trust right so you need to go out and find veteran relievers and those guys are pretty cheap at the deadline uh typically those deals come down to the deadline because the teams with those like veteran relievers who are going to you know pending free agents like just want to get some sort of value in return so a lot of times you see those deals on july 31st and i would expect the blue jays to be dishing out those players to be named later or those sort of lottery ticket prospects in exchange for those relievers so like right there i've identified position player one or two starters one or two relievers it's like five players man the Blue Jays got to be active. That's what I'm getting at here. They got a lot of work to do. And they I expect that they are going to be like adding quite a few players going into the trade deadline. And that this roster is going to look quite different on August 1st than it does today. And and again, it should be relatively doable. And it's not as though like it's better to be in that position than it is where you've got, you know, a bunch of guys who are kind of okay and you need some stars. I mean, they've got Vlad, they've got George Springer joining this team. They got Ryu and Ray. Like the, the talent is there. They have to support it. And again, when I point, when I compare the Blue Jays to the Dodgers, that's a lofty comparison and also reflects the progress the Blue Jays have made in the last couple of years. Because look, there are not a lot of teams that have an Austin Barnes who can step in, a Zach McKinstry who've got maybe a Matt Beattie who can play some great defense for you at first base and also hit a little bit when you need replacements like not every team or most teams don't have that so it's a lofty standard one the blue jays are aspiring to they're still not there and this is a season where their depth has already been tested but you know i i think when i'm watching games around the league i look at guys like you say kikuchi who's up to 97 just pounding the zone he would be great they've liked him in the past kyle gibson we've mentioned him on this podcast again throws strikes four pitches for strikes like he's a good major league pitcher that's the kind of guy who would raise the floor of this team. You're not going to have to give up Jordan Groshans to get Kyle Gibson. So that's the sort of trade that I think is interesting to contemplate. Obviously, we're a couple months away, but it's never too early. And I guarantee these thoughts and conversations are occurring internally as well. Yeah, and I think that over the next, uh, I don't know, 30, 45 days or so, the Blue Jays will also get a good idea of who internally can help right you know thomas hatch on the way back right so what what can he be for this rotation uh alec manoa making his debut today what can he be for the rest of the season what's nate pearson going to be for this club right because like you know if you get to a a point where like your rotation is looking like ryu ray manoa pearson and steven matz oh you're probably pretty happy there. so maybe maybe at that point you just focus on bullpen and position player exactly the assessment that will occur over the next, you know, six weeks can be really important for this club as they kind of formalize like their strategy at the trade deadline. But I think regardless, I expect the Blue Jays to be active. I expect them to be doing a lot. And like the position player one really sticks out to me because I don't 
see who on this 40 or even who like just off the 40 in the minors is going to be coming up to make impact as a position player on on this club obviously getting george springer back is going to help but i mean somebody else is going to be hurt somebody else is going to be slumping i mean someone else is going to be unreliable i mean like i just think that and that's kind of you know there's there's not always as much supply (laughs) out there of you know really like good position players who can help a club like last year the blue jays had to go with jonathan vr and we all saw how that went right so it, it can be hard to kind of find that guy on the market who you can acquire and bring in who can really help you like you know there's there's going to be veteran relievers out there i promise you there's going to be starting pitchers you know who are pending free agents who are going to be moved i promise you but on the position player side that can sometimes be tougher to find and so i think that's going to be a, a big question for this club yeah it can and you know i wonder about a guy like Joey Gallo, um, just because left-handed bat, and he can play some good defense for you, maybe a little first base. Is that kind of a Rowdy Telez upgrade? Is that something they look at? But you're right, the the pitching part of it, you always know pitching is going to move at the deadline. Every team who's contending needs pitching. That obviously will apply to the Jays. So the pitching part is almost, in a sense, easier because you know it's going to be there every year. Yeah, Eduardo Escobar. That's my guy. The Diamondbacks, Arizona's like, I think I was watching them last night and they lost like their 10th in a row. It's over for them, pending free agent. Switch hitter, plays a little second, a little short, a little third, has pop. Uh, You know, I I think he's a a nice fit for this club, Uh, but we shall see. We're going to step away. We come back. We will uh, recap everything else going on with the Blue Jays when it continues on at the letters. It continues on at the letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. And it is time now for Keeping It Light, presented by Miller Light. And I want to make uh, everybody aware that uh, at letters now has an email address and uh, we want to hear your ideas for what you want us to cover on uh, keeping it light so uh, feel free to shoot us a note at ask at the letters at gmail.com that's ask at the letters gmail.com ben will stick it into the podcast description it'll be there if you're looking for it shoot us a note let us know what you want us to talk about leave your name hey if we like it we'll get to it and if you don't ben's just gonna have us talk about how great vladimir guerrero jr is every week he drills the ball right center field and it is gone he has done it again and he is all alone atop the major league home run leaderboard right now number 16 for flatty and it's two to nothing blue jays so they can hit at yankee stadium too (laughs) (laughs) that's what we're gonna do this week so bet the question posed this week how many hitters in baseball can you confidently say have more offensive ability than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. right now? Well, it's not very many, which is which is <laughs> kind of crazy. And, you know, I feel like if we do talk about Vladdy a lot, but I feel like we have to. I mean, he's hitting he's hitting like prime Miguel Cabrera. And that's not to say that that's who he is or that he will sustain this, but that's what is happening right now in front of us as we watch this Blue Jays team. And it's reminiscent of the best hot streaks from Edwin Encarnacion, the best seasons of Jose Bautista. You think back to Josh Donaldson, to Carlos Delgado, to some of the great hitters 
the Blue Jays have had. And I know it's only two months, but he's also 22 years old and he's doing it in a way that appears to be sustainable with exceptional plate discipline, with incredible quality of contact. It's impressive. So when I look around baseball and try to put Vlad in context and understand where he belongs among the better hitters in the game, I think he's passed a lot of guys this year. I mean, that goes without saying almost. And for the Freddie Freemans and Xander Bogarts of the world, for even Mookie Betts, I think Vlad is a better hitter than these guys right now. I I believe that. Now, there are some other hitters. Maybe it's a J.D. Martinez or Shohei Otani. You can make an argument either way. Ronald Acuna Jr., of course, incredible player. But when I'm trying to come up with guys to answer the question here, who I am confident in saying they are a better hitter, which is what I'm interpreting to mean providing more offensive value than Vlad Guerrero Jr. I only have two. I think Mike Trout, I am confident in saying, is a better hitter than Vlad. And I would say Juan Soto is because both those guys have incredible plate discipline and incredible power and line drive, hard contact ability. And the others on this list might have one of those skills, but to combine them, I don't necessarily see it. So to me, I don't know where you land, Arden, but I go with Mike Trout, Juan Soto, those guys, I'm confident in saying they're better than Vlad. Anyone else? I mean, you could have an argument one way or the other, but I'm not going to be confident in taking those guys ahead of Vlad right now. Yeah, it's like, it depends on your definition of hitter. Because like Shohei Otani is a tremendous hitter. Yeah. Makes some of the best contact in the game. But the guy strikes out a ton and he doesn't really walk. We can just kind of order like the players by weighted runs create plus and say like, are those the best hitters? Well, those are the best all around offensive contributors right but you're gonna have guys who are you know up there because of their selectivity and their discipline and their walk rates but maybe their quality of contact isn't quite as good your max Muncy's, right exactly that's like a great example you know vlad is like certainly combining like all of those elements as you said like walk rates great the pitch selection is great like the swing decisions really good when he makes contact it is as hard as anybody in the game so i think that makes him easily top five top ten you know if you really want to be a stickler hitter in baseball but i don't know like it's kind of funny man sometimes you talk to people in the game and you ask them like yeah you know who's a hitter you really like who's a really great hitter and you'll hear it's not always the names that you expect like remember when Bo bichette said that DJ the Mayhew was the best hitter in baseball. Right. It's like, it's not the first name that comes up, right? But that's a guy who could put up like an amazing batting average, right? Like he's got great bat to ball, clearly knows what he like, is really, really confident at handling the bat and like into a bunch of pitches around the zone and spraying balls around the diamond, like all fields approach, all that kind of stuff. But like, doesn't make the same quality of contact as an Aaron Judge or even a Vladdy. And also doesn't walk as often as a lot of guys in the game. So is he the best hitter in baseball? You know, like, like it's it, it it really depends on what you value. And I think everybody's going to value something different. Right. And, and certainly some people interpret best hitter to mean what Bo does. And that's to say bat to ball skills. And so in that case, you're talking, I mean, Vlad's in that discussion too, but you're talking about DJ LeMahieu, maybe Xander Bogarts, maybe Trey Turner's in that discussion. Tatis belongs in all these discussions. Soto belongs in all these discussions. Acuna as well. I mean, there's some guys who just who just cover everything. Then if it's the pure power, you're maybe looking at Judge and Stanton and J.D. Martinez and Bryce Harper and guys who can just connect with the ball and hit at 500 feet 
Vlad belongs in that discussion too, <laughs> which you know is kind of why at this point, and again, I, we don't know where this is going to lead. I have my suspicions. I think it's going to lead some very good places for Vladdy, but we don't know where it's going to lead. And I'm not trying to enshrine him in the Hall of Fame or give him an MVP yet. It's too soon for that. It's been two months, but these two months have been incredible. And so, yeah, to answer the question, I think you can debate a lot of guys as far as where Vlad compares to them, but it's hard to come up with guys that you would say definitively are better. Yeah, like if it's bat to ball skills, well then, okay, is like Michael Brantley the best hitter? Yeah, he would be up there. Yeah, he would be up there. You know, like Yuli Gurriel, right? Like there's yep. guys who make like, I mean, you know, we haven't even mentioned the name Mookie Betts in this right. like conversation yet, right? So like there's guys who like make exceptional contact in this game. So yeah, it's just going to depend on what, what you like. Like, I don't know, man, like to me, Shohei Otani, what he's doing as a pitcher, how does that slide the scale a little bit, right? In that, the, you know, in this guy's like weak, he has to focus on like being a really good starting pitcher and like logging innings and focus, you know, throwing bullpen and working on his you know pitches and pitch design all this stuff and then oh in the meantime he just like in his free time is just one of the best hitters in baseball i was watching that game last night and he uh i forget which you know rangers plug he was he was facing but he works this like amazing plate appearance like he's laying off tough pitches fouling off tough stuff he missed his cookie early in the plate appearance he got like a 1-0 like you know change up on the plate or something and like swung through it gets to a full count and then gets this nasty little cutter like inside and turns on it and rips it like 120 miles an hour, like wraps it around the right field foul pole after seeing everything away and everything out over the plate and down and away and sitting on it and spitting on it and like having an approach and that discipline and still being able to like get your hands in and hit a ball that hard on like a pretty good pitch. That's a really good hitter. And the fact that that guy is also like, one of the best starting pitchers in baseball as well. I mean, I have to grade him pretty high as well. I like how the keeping it light is also kind of becoming the Otani segment, but he, he <laughs> deserves, you know, he deserves so much credit. And I was thinking the other day on Otani because I was looking for pitchers who have pitched like a comparable amount of innings. And so, and with maybe similar ERAs. And so you come across guys like Sonny Gray. And I was just thinking like, what if Sonny Gray had 15 home runs or Trent Thornton? <laughs> like what if Trent Thornton was right behind Aaron Judge and the OPS leaderboard? Like that's where we're at with Shohei Otani. And we just, we're almost getting used to it. I hope, I don't think we are really getting used to it, but he's just been incredible. And it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Shohei's like, he's going to be right there with Vlad for like kind of the league lead and home runs. Yeah. But like Shohei doesn't have as many opportunities because like there's like Shohei gets his like scheduled days off right not like too I'm, many but sometimes yeah right it's like it's it's crazy what that guy is doing so uh i don't know i don't know if we even like came to a conclusion here but uh there's a lot of good hitters in baseball uh this year and i will also say like what vlad is doing is even more impressive what do you put into the context of how good pitching's been this year yeah <laughs> like how right you know this this debate that's occurring across baseball about the sticky stuff that's being used and about how good the pitchers are and all the no hitters being thrown and how challenging it is to be a hitter uh at an elite level and all vlad did was like raise his game at a, like to an insane degree at a time when offense has been suppressed across the game yeah it's pretty impressive it's amazing yeah it's and that context is really necessary for understanding what he's doing because again league average for for batting average last i checked was around 234 
So if you're hitting 334 like Vladdy is, then you're doing a lot of things really well. Yeah, league average OPS is like 700 yep. or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's tough to be a hitter these days, man. It's very, very tough. Let's uh, wrap up a couple of Blue Jays notes here. Uh, Blue Jays no longer playing in Dunedin, Florida. The schedule is shifting to Buffalo, back to Salem Field, which has been extensively renovated since last the Blue Jays were there. It's got the bullpens off the, the field, finally, so that nobody's going to go and blow out their ACL on one of those things. Uh, you know, upgraded the clubhouse and the weight room and stuff. Can't have, you know, your like batting cages and your SWAT racks on the concourse anymore because it's going to be fans there. It's going to be fans in the stands, fully vaccinated sections and then sections for the unvaccinated. It's going to be interesting to see like what the atmosphere is like there. Um, But on the field, Ben, what kind of implications do you think there will be for the Blue Jays, for for hitters, for pitchers? I mean, how do you think this will affect the on-field product for the Blue Jays moving up to Buffalo from Dunedin? I still think it will be a hitter's environment, and I still think that it will, I think this one will play to the Blue Jays' advantage, much like it seemed to uh, last year, because you're going to have a lot of unfamiliar teams that aren't totally comfortable there. It's a minor league facility. It's new to them. They don't have the same amenities, so that could help the Jays. But man, it's worth noting just on, on Dunedin as they wrap up there, this is a, a place that the Jays offensively absolutely excelled in. They, at home, had the number one batting average, number one on base percentage, number one OPS in baseball. Then you go to look at their road numbers, it's more like 18th or 22nd or 24th. So they were way better at home. And most teams are a little bit better at home. But this is kind of like a Rockies level split. And it tells you that, you know, Dunedin was a very hitter friendly environment. And of course, that cuts both ways. The pitchers struggled. They did better on the road. So we might see a little bit of an equalizing as they move to Buffalo. And the pitchers might have a little bit more of a chance. The hitters might have a little bit of a harder time. Um, But, you know, I think that the the biggest difference might actually be seeing some fans and seeing that environment change because you know I was looking at the on baseball reference they have the attendance right and they have the total attendance that a team has drawn for the season yeah. I looked at the Jays it's thirty thousand for the season you know and we're, we're <laughs> a third of the way in that's like one game normally yeah. so and a lot of those were rooting against the Jays very obviously so I think for them to have a bit more of a home field crowd and advantage. It's not going to totally tilt the balances. We know home field in baseball is never that huge, but it could help them a little bit. Yeah, Dunedin was a launching pad. So the Blue Jays played 21 games uh, in Dunedin, uh, averaged 5.9 runs per game. In 26 games on the road, Blue Jays averaging 4.3 runs per game. So that's a 1.6 run difference. Like that is huge. Uh, And opponents. As well, by the way, in, in Toronto's games and Dunedin's this, this year, opponents averaged 5.2 runs on the road. Blue Jays' opponents have averaged 3.6 runs. Again, it's like a run and a half difference. So that's a big difference. And so I think you can probably like kind of downgrade some of the expectations on, on hitters by a few percentage points, particularly when it comes to power. I would say, particularly when it comes to homers, um, I think you can you can probably upgrade the expectations a little bit on the Blue Jays pitching staff. You know, here's the thing: like last year, Buffalo was a pretty like good offensive environment 
as well. And which is interesting because like you would talk to hitters and they would all say like, man, it's like tough to get a ball out at Salem Field, you know, like when it's the when the wind's blowing in off the off Lake Erie there and, uh, you know, the outfield plays really big and, you know, hitters weren't exactly, I remember there's the whole thing with the batter's eye that they didn't like, like hitters weren't exactly excited to play there, but the Blue Jays scored a bunch of runs there last year. So I don't know, <laughs> like we'll see how it how it plays this year. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, the atmosphere will be a little bit better. Uh, let's finish off here by rounding up uh, just a few guys that we want to, you know, just point out and make some notes on. And what's kind of interesting is as we get deeper and deeper into the season, like I said, still 115 games to play, still a lot of, you know, a lot of information points to come, but we are starting to kind of like learn some things, right? So you think about some of the guys who had big question marks coming into the year, and you could look at the pitching staff, especially guys like Steven Matz, guys like, Robbie Ray, uh, starting to learn some things about them, man. Like you look at what Steven Matz did the other day against the Yankees, uh, had like one of his best outings like in years. Uh, and like, he just had everything working for him on that day. And it was, what was really interesting was like, he had the, the fastball as always, he's using that up in the zone and he's got his change up, which he's always going to have. And he's using that down in the zone. And then now he's got like this 90 mile an hour slider that he's throwing in to the Yankees, like insanely right-handed heavy lineup and it's working. Um, so like I, like as a hitter, man, like good luck. You got fastballs up, changeups down, sliders in all at different like velocities, all moving a little bit differently. And he's mixing and matching with all of them. I don't know, you know, if Matt's is able to locate all of those and use them all effectively, like, I don't know what you do as a hitter. That's how you end up with the outing that, Matt's had where it was like 16 swinging strikes and you know just like dominant and even like could have been a lot better if he had gotten some you know if it had been an automated strike zone it definitely would have been a lot better so it is interesting to see him kind of incorporate that sort of it's like I don't know 90 mile an hour slider is like it crosses the threshold of like cutter territory even that's a weapon that I think developmentally the Blue Jays really like because we've seen Jordan Romano incorporate that. We've seen Ryan Barucki using it. And now it seems like Steven Matz is starting to develop it as well. Like it's clearly something the Blue Jays kind of push to their pitchers. So, you know, you think about the expectations for Steven Matz coming into the season. What was he going to be coming off of last year, which was like went disastrously for him? Well, if he can just kind of be what he's been to this point, have some strong starts, have some not so strong ones that kind of, you know, settle in as like just kind of a dependable guy. Well, if he's your number four behind like Ryu, Ray, Manoa slash Pearson, one of those two, I think you're feeling pretty good if you're the Blue Jays. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, he doesn't have to be that ace like we saw against the Yankees every time. And it's probably not fair to expect that. Just you look at his track record, you look at some of the rough starts he's had. And I know you're not saying that you expect that, but you know, I, I think if you bake in the reality that he's probably going to have some ups and downs, he's probably going to have some outings where he does allow five or six runs and the Jays really have to score to get their way out of trouble. Maybe you end up with a 4-3 ERA. I forget where we set the over-under for Mats, but it was definitely over 4-3. <laughs> you know, and I yeah. think if we were setting an over-under for him right now, it probably would be a lot lower. At least I would be inclined to go a lot lower with my, what my expectations are because generally he's looked pretty good so far this year. And that's, of course, that's huge for this team. How much are you buying into what Robbie Ray is doing lately? Because like the last six starts, it is 49 strikeouts versus one walk. How much are you buying into like this being a real 
adjustments and like Robbie Ray just being a different guy going forward? Or are you still somewhat expecting him to be Robbie Ray again at some point here? You know, I think at this point you have to buy in to a pretty significant extent. And it doesn't guarantee that it's going to last forever, but I think his next start will be good. I think he's not the guy who was walking a batter per inning when the Jays acquired him from Arizona. I think he has clearly been able to to make some adjustments and attack the strike zone much better, trust stuff that's obviously dynamic and obviously hard to hit, and get way better results. I mean, the Jays signed him for $8 million. And I think if he continues at this rate, hits free agency this offseason, he's clearly in line for a multi-year deal, clearly in line to make a much higher AAV and that's because he's pitching a lot better. And, and I, I know there's a temptation to say, and there's and it's reasonable to say, hey, we need to see more before we change our opinion. But you look at the way teams make decisions and the way they pay players in free agency, very often it doesn't take a huge amount for teams to buy in and believe that what they're seeing is real. You think about, I don't know, Drew Smiley or Drew Pomerantz, some of these pitchers who, who go out there for like 13 to 30 innings are amazing at the end of a season. Rich Hill was one of these guys a few years back. And then teams just buy in. So the same thing here applies to Robbie Ray, in my opinion, where it doesn't mean he's going to be good four years from now. But I think right now, he looks clearly like the second best starter in this rotation and a guy who on any given night can make a big difference for the Jays. Yeah, Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon, like pretty obvious qualifying offer candidates at this point right now. Um, And it's even like you mentioned, it's kind of funny to go back and play revisionist history on the, uh, you know, the starting pitching market this past offseason. Blue Jays did pretty well in getting Robbie Ray for what they got him at and jumping early on him, too, by the way. It's not like they would kind of wait around. He was the last option. They were like they targeted him. and they were like, this is the guy. This is who we want. We're going to go out. We're going to get this deal done early and quick like it was in like that week where like morton and smiley both went off the board and then ray you even look back now like Corey kluber looks good for a while now he's out for two months right you got a no hitter out of him great but now you're without him for like eight weeks james paxton tommy john surgery jake odorizzi's thrown 10 innings yeah he's coming <laughs> right? back they, now but yeah he's pitched like once or twice yeah and they haven't been great um, like it's hard to imagine what the blue, you know, who would have been better to go get Trevor Bauer obviously has been tremendous, but I mean, that's $40 million a year right there. And that's also everything else that comes along with having Trevor Bauer in your clubhouse and on your team. Kevin Gossman would have been a pretty good one. He took the qualifying offer, right? Like, and he didn't, and the blue Jays tried to get him on a multi-year deal and he didn't want to take it. Walker's been good. Last I checked. Yeah, Tywin Walker's been good. Yeah, yep, that's a good one. And they could have got more than one. Like, they could have got more. They could have done Ray plus. Um, Shoemaker yeah. hasn't been great. So, you know, they've certainly... Ray was a great call. How's uh, Tomiyuki Sagano doing back in Japan? I haven't even looked at that, right? I have like, no you know, idea. <laughs> there's another one, right? That, you know, maybe, or, you know, Tanaka or whatever. But, like, still, I think you know, what I'm trying to say is Blue Jays did well yeah. in getting Robbie Ray here. Like, this is looking very good. But, yeah, yeah, everybody's mileage is going to vary on, like, how real they think it is. Because, like, look, you, you know, command and, like, strike throwing isn't often something that, like, guys can just learn. 
at like this stage in their careers, especially, right? Like in general, we all like vastly overestimate and overrate how much command MLB pitchers have and how like reliably they can locate baseballs at 97 miles an hour and like breaking stuff that's, you know, spinning at, you know, 25, 2600 revolutions per minute. Like we, we all way overrate that, right? Like, like command is like just spotty across the game. Um, so you don't typically see like leaps like this in terms of strike throwing command particularly this late in a career so like that's why there's going to be skepticism there and that's you know the track record certainly there's like it's going to produce a bunch of skepticism as to how real this is i mean i will say after a half dozen like really strong starts it's starting to smell very real i don't know like credit to robbie ray i guess is the big thing i would come away saying because look he came into spring and looked like this then he fell down a flight of stairs and smashed up his elbow and then he picked right back up where he left off. So, you know, I, I am inclined to believe that he can, he's probably not continue being quite as good as he's been. It would be very hard. It's a very high bar, but I think, I don't think he's going to be that, you know, walk a batter and inning guy anymore. Maybe will be again and I'll look like an idiot for saying this, but I think that, you know, the adjustments are very real. And yeah, I think he's going to be a really good piece for this club going forward. What do you think for walks per nine? Like from here to the end of the season, like three per nine, like three and a half. Like, I don't think it's six. I don't think it's one. Well, if you had to peg it, what would your guess be? <laughs> I think three is fair. Yeah, yeah, three. Which is way better than where he's been. No, yeah, I don't think it's going to be five or six. The other interesting thing the Blue Jays have been doing is like they have been pushing Robbie Ray deep yep. into outings, man. Like he's getting extended up to like, you know, 110, 112 pitches. Matt's too was up to 112 the other day. Um, Ryu has been getting up over 100. He like had not been over 100 pitches as a Blue Jay until last week. And when when they kind of pushed him deeper, like Charlie Montoya really starting to sort of nudge his pitchers deeper in his starters, deeper into outings, which makes sense considering the state of his bullpen right now. Um, it hasn't necessarily always been the philosophy for this club over the last, uh, you know, 18 months or whatever, where, you know, letting guys go a full third trip through an order, letting guys like pitch into the seventh, into the eighth, like throwing 112 pitches. Like this isn't something we've seen a lot from the Blue Jays, but it is something that we've seen over the last, I would say, seven to 10 days, uh, which, you know, like, look, bullpen's taxed and giving up a lot of runs and not great options out there currently. So it makes sense. But it is an interesting thing. and something I have my eye on. Yeah, a bit of a shift from what we saw last year, from what we saw early in the season, just as they get back to 162. You know, we say it all the time, but it's such a long season. You need so many innings. That's why. And, and pitching is a game of attrition. Like it's not wasn't necessarily a bad decision by the Yankees to get Kluber or the Mariners to get Paxton. It's just sometimes it's the nature of it. And maybe in a couple of weeks, the Jays have another pitching injury. They certainly had their share already. So I'm sure... Uh, all of our listeners are hoping not um, and never w would wish that, but it's the nature of it, right? And and so it's it's a challenge every team faces. Yeah, this could age poorly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> yeah, no, and I think also, you know, Charlie Montoya was indicating how much he trusts the three guys at the top of his rotation right now. So that's pretty big. Uh, out in the bullpen, I do want to just like make note that uh, Tyler Chatwood could use a few days. I think the Blue Jays need to get that guy a few days. He has been uh, used a lot and uh, overused. Uh, and recently, he is not as effective as he was earlier in the season. He, In four of his last five appearances, he has no swinging strikes. 
And over that span, he has five walks versus three strikeouts. He's still getting the job done, but it's getting a little hairy and a little dicey there. And look, every pitcher's going to go through it. Particularly, you look at a guy like Tyler Chatwood, who's getting like accustomed to a new role, right? New workload demands and different you know, routines in between outings. Like he deserves time to sort it out. But I, you know, I don't think he's the sure thing in high leverage that he appeared to be earlier in the season um so i think that you know the blue jays need to just back him off a little bit right now just so he can get to the finish line of this year that's interesting so you said four of his last five he has no swinging strikes yeah yeah i mean that's see this is the kind of example right we've we've talked in the past about how you don't want to just go off of pitch counts or innings counts right like that's the kind of tell that if you're the blue jays you probably look at that and you say okay maybe his stuff is not playing as well and we need to take this into account this is a chance for them to be proactive and or I guess reactive, but reactive, <laughs> proactive, some sort of mix there and say, you know what, like it's you're still a super valuable part of this bullpen. But I would agree with your conclusion here that he needs some rest. Yeah, that's why like I really didn't have a big problem with him being yanked from that um, that game against right. the Rays. When they brought uh, in uh, Bergen. Brought in Bergen, yeah. who walked in three of Chatwood's base runners. But he was getting swinging strikes, and he was like, he wasn't locating, and he his stuff just wasn't playing and wasn't that effective. Um, and I think it was Austin Meadows coming up too, like doesn't hit lefties at all, right? So, you know, like I was totally fine with that move. I know it was a little bit controversial, but I like I think it was totally defensible when you look at just kind of the way that the chat with some pitching lately. I think he'll be fine. I think he'll come back around. Like I think he'll be he'll be good again for this club. I just think they've had to lean on him so heavily over these first sort of six, seven, eight weeks of the season. Uh and, and it's starting to catch up a little bit. Yeah. So get him some rest. And this is where you know, if they were a little deeper in the bullpen right now, this would be an ideal time for a phantom IL. As it stands, you know, maybe you use them once in, or twice in the next 10 days. And so it's not quite that, but you do ease up. Last guy, Lourdes Goriel Jr., who is like a one-way ticket on the BABIP Express yeah. straight out of his uh, early season funk. Uh, is this who he is? As a hitter, Ben, like, is this just what we're going to have to, like, deal with as long as he's Toronto Blue Jays, that there's going to be these, like, five, six-week craters where it's not working, and then he's going to have these, like, two-week, three-week, four-week runs where it's, like, multi-hit games every day? Is this just who he is? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we even when he was still slumping a couple weeks ago, we said at the time, like, he's got a couple really hot streaks in him, and it's going to happen this year uh, based on everything that we could have reasonably expected at that point. In his last nine games, he's got seven multi-hit games, OPS over 1,000 for that stretch. That's a pretty good hot streak, and it's probably not the last one he's going to have this year. So it's a skill set that looks really good right now when it's going well, when hits are landing, and it's a skill set. I mean, again, he's not a good defensive outfielder. He doesn't run particularly fast. He doesn't walk. So when he's not hitting and making that hard contact, it really doesn't look good. But now it's working, and the Jays, on the balance, have a very good player here in Guriel, based on what we've seen from him in the major leagues. He's been a well above average hitter. And so I think that's probably what we should expect from him going forward. Yeah, when Lourdes Guriel Jr. like walks to the plate with the bat in his hands, he is going up there to swing that thing. Like he is taking that tool up there to use it. 
he's going to swing. That's just what he's going to do. So he's going to have these runs, right? And you see over these last couple of weeks, like not everything's been a laser, you know, not everything has been, you know, to the wall. Like we are seeing a lot of balls finding holes. We're seeing a lot of kind of shift busting ground balls, like going the other way. Hey man, they still count as hits. Like it still count as on base. Like that's fine. I haven't necessarily seen the exit velocities where I'd like to see them. You know, I haven't seen the quality of contact quite where you need it to be. Obviously, the swing decisions are never going to be perfect with Lourdes Gurriel Jr. But you know, so I, I'd still like to see him making some some better contact personally before my sort of you know concerns are are alleviated with him. But yeah, like if you're the Blue Jays, like you ride this Baba pot streak like as as far as he'll take it. Because look, he's hitting like seven. In in the lineup every day and as we mentioned earlier like you know the bottom of the blue jays lineup whether it's panic espinal mcguire jonathan davis like it's not giving you a lot down there right so as long as like george springer is out and not hitting at the top of this order and as long as you don't have kevin biggio to at least like give you a good on base tool in that spot um or in that kind of segment of of the lineup card ride it as long as as long as he'll do it if you got to like play him at first base sometimes because you know if you gotta like take him out as a defensive replacement late in games like whatever you gotta do to keep that bat in lineup right now because i mean he's you know he is on one of those tears and i bet you we're gonna see a few of them in his blue jays career yeah and i think it's it's interesting within the context of this team because if he was on the orioles say He's probably their second best hitter behind Trey Mancini. If he's on the Tigers, you know, he's maybe their best hitter, right? So on on the Jays, he's number six or seven or eight or, you know, depending on the day, depending on who's healthy, he's just not somebody who they absolutely need to be producing. And of course, they want him to produce and and he's still underperforming what we should expect from him. But there's less urgency when you have a, a lineup that is this deep and has so many hitters who can really create a lot of value at any given week. No kidding. Uh, that's Ben Nicholson-Smith. My name's Arden Swelling. We want to thank you, as always, for listening. We want to thank our producers, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Taking Us Out is a two-piece band from Toronto who got their start back in 2011. They have opened up for Bon Jovi and the Sheepdogs. Here's Good Night Sunrise with Won't Be Long. We've been down. Oh, man.